We're talking about change. Change. One constant in our life is change. And we're using this as our definition. Sanctification, that big theological word that we can now impress our friends with. On the ongoing process in the life of a disciple, whereby the holiness, nature, character, and power of Christ can be readily seen. The inworking and outworking of justification, whereby we become less like our old self and more the new self being made into the image of Christ. Bob Mumford, if you don't know that name, I feel sorry for you. He's one of the premier teachers in this generation, really maybe a former generation. But one of the great teachers in the body of Christ was having an encounter with the Holy Spirit. God came to him and said, Mumford, you and I are not compatible. And I don't change. Which means that if we're going to find a compatibility with God, that the responsibility of change is not coming on God. It's going to come upon who? You and me. Because part of the nature and character of God is he is immutable, which means he does not. He does not change. Thank you very much. And yet you and I are called the fine print on the contract. When you move from death to life and you signed on for this, the small print on the contract was God's going to be in your business. In a serious way, as long as you walk with him. And in this lifetime, it means you're going to be changing. That if you're going to be walking with God, if you're going to be intimate with God, it means you have signed up to do what? Change. Now, when you get to heaven, hallelujah, it all stops. Because it says when we see him, we will be like him. Then it stops. Hallelujah. But until then, as long as you are spontaneously respirating, you get to change. Praise God. And part of the way that we do that, guess what? We get to die. Oh, boy. We get to die daily. It's the process of embracing the cross. Jesus said, pick up your cross, follow me, which means there's a daily act whereby which we have to deny ourselves in order to do what? Follow him. Now, we know in an ultimate sense, Christ died once for all, for you, for me. We're good with God. But in a penultimate sense, it means that we are continually in this process where we're having to put to death those sayings of the old nature, the sin nature, the old man, in order to receive the newness that Christ has in you and in me. We're not happy about this. I quoted this a couple of weeks ago, Evelyn Underhill. We most likely spend our lives conjugating three verbs to want, to have, and to do. Craving, clutching, and fussing were kept in perpetual unrest. Quite simply, when we die to self, we're no longer obsessed with self. Dying to self actually makes life easier. And to do that, there's an exchange. Same way that the feeding of the 5,000, this young boy had to give up groceries, had to give over what he had to see a greater miracle occur. 
Many times the reason that we don't see the miracle in our life is that we're so busy holding on to whatever little pathetic thing is that we think has value that we're not willing to give it over to God for him to give us something of eternal worth. Children can grab hold of the most useless junk and think they've got something. Isn't that amazing? Because children have no understanding of what? Value or cost. They just don't. I mean, if it's shiny and it comes in a package and it looks good, I mean, it doesn't matter if it costs 49 cents. They'll grab onto it because they have no understanding of value. Immaturity does exactly the same thing, just like children. Principle of the kingdom is one of exchange. We give over one thing, God gives us another. We're afraid of what we might become. What if I lose me? Good, lose you. Trust me, you'll find a better version of yourself. The problem of pain. Won't it hurt? Yeah, it will. Trust me, it will hurt. Saying no is always costly. We don't like no much. We like yes a lot, though. And no is painful. And yet Jesus didn't promise us a pain-free existence. He just promised us that he would be with us and walk us through it. And it's a progressive death if there's such a thing, which there is. But tonight, I want to talk about something a little bit different. And I've entitled this, The Candy Dish. Put, the, put this picture up if you would. Now, I've told this story before. Some of you haven't heard it. I like it, so I'm going to tell it again. And I'm getting old enough now that I can blame it on that. My mother, in our living room, and I was raised in a generation where there was a room of the house that one did not go in. They walked by it in reverence. You understand what I'm saying, right? Some of you, the furniture was ensconced in vinyl. It was intended to be a museum piece, nothing to be ever set on. It's where the good dishes were. That we used that for company, but that company never came. You ate off that busted Tupperware the entire time waiting for the special company to come to finally use the wedding dishes. You know what I'm talking about. The good crystal, the good silver. But there was that living room where it was the museum. And you even lowered your voice and you spoke reverently when you walked by that room. And you were, it was never intended to be used by the mere likes of mortal man like you. But my mother on this, had this coffee table in front of one of these white couches. And you can tell if you've got white furniture, you understand, they were never intended for children to be involved with that. And on that coffee table sat this, right in the middle of this coffee table, like, like the proverbial sirens on the rocks crying out. And it was full of candy. Now, as you can imagine, I was a chunky child. They didn't call it healthy or chunky. They called it husky in those days. The clothes were brown. They were ugly. 
you were marked as a husky child. And I like to eat. I still like to eat. And in the candy dish, there was candy. With the strict instructions, don't even think about. Well, maybe you didn't hear this growing up. Don't even think about eating what's in that candy dish. Now, let me just help you. To a child, this made no sense. Why would you have candy and not do what? Eat it. Even more so, why would you put it on display? Out there for God and the apostles and the angels to see it. And you have been given strict instructions, busting out of your pants. You are not to eat this candy. Some years ago, my mother found this candy dish, and she gave it to me for Christmas. (laughs) I love my mother, but that was pure evil. I've been in therapy ever since (laughs) from this Christmas gift. Amazing. But she put that on that table, not just to make me miserable, but to do what? Train me. Train me. It's like the law. Given as scripture talks about, the law is given to us as guardians. Guardrails, if you wish, for life, but the law will never be a guard dog. There's a difference. See, a guard dog will reach back and it will, it, will, it will start to growl and tell you you can't come there. But that was never the intention of the law. You see, temptation, huh, this is going to mess you up for a moment, but I'll fix it. Temptation as an instrument of sanctification and one of the modus operandi of the enemy watch this, becomes at once something both allowed by God himself and something to be resisted with his help. Now, that's so weird. I'm going to say it again. Temptation as an instrument of sanctification and one of the modus operandi of the enemy becomes at once something both allowed by God and something to be resisted with his help. And as a result, something is forced, reinforced, and formed in us as we learn to resist. As we learn to resist. Something happens in you and me. Now, this is important that you hear this very quickly. So let me theologically put this out there. James chapter 1 verse 13 says this. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. It's important that you hear this. One definition I read of temptation is an enticement or invitation to sin. With the implied promise of greater good to be derived from following the way of disobedience. Satan initiated his relationship with man exactly this way in Genesis chapter 3, did he not? This was how he made his introduction, was as a tempter. 
which is one of the biblical names that we find for Satan. Tempting that first couple. Oh, surely God didn't say that. Oh, you need this. One thing God had told these guys to do, and it made them nuts, made them crazy. And the devil was right there tempting them. You'll be all right. Go ahead. Jesus started his ministry being tempted. Turn over to Luke, Matthew, rather, the fourth chapter. You could turn to Luke too, but we'll read it out of Matthew. Matthew chapter 4, let's read the passage, you know it. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Now that's a month of teaching right there in that one passage, by the way. But for the sake of time, we have to just read it and keep moving. After fasting for 40 days and nights, he was hungry. You think? I mean, seriously, we go for, we go for two or three days, I'm dying. No, you're not. 40 days and 40 nights. And the tempter came to him. Here it is. There's his name. And said, if you're the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now, how many of you know that God, Jesus, in that moment could have had all the bread he wanted? Hello? I mean, let me just tell you, he could have had a veritable bakery show up. The very same way as they were taunting him on the cross. Come down from there if you're really God. Trust me. There were angels, legions of angels were just like, let me at it. Just, just let, can you imagine what it took from the father at that moment just to hold those angelic, angelic forces back in that particular moment? And in this moment, Jesus could have had all the bread he wanted, but he answered, it's written, say it's written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. Jesus said, it's also written, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world. All this I will give you. Don't you find this a little odd to begin with? If you will bow down and worship me, Jesus said, away from me, for it is what? Come on, say it louder. For it is, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him. And angels came and attended him. Now, what preceded this moment? Anybody remember? Jesus' baptism. Heaven's affirmation coming, proclaiming, this is who he is. This is my son. With whom I'm what? Well pleased. Proclamation and affirmation. And then there's always temptation. We have these amazing moments where God comes and he affirms us. There's a proclamation. And then the temptation comes. Challenging that proclamation. And that followed the manifestation and validation of who Jesus really was. Verse 17 from that time on, what happened? Jesus began to preach. Now, this passage is classically interpreted as a how-to for Christians in how to rebuke the devil. And we're going to examine that. But perhaps an even more significant interpretation of this event 
is an extension of what Christ has already done for us. You know, we look at this as a set of instructions. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use that classic interpretation tonight. But could it be that what we're seeing is that in this moment, Christ had already defeated the devil? We, many times we see the atoning work of God limited to just what happened at Calvary. But could it be that the defeat of the devil did not just happen there, but we're seeing something that is being foreshadowed in this moment, but we have benefit of today? Is that in every one of these attacks, there's already been victory because Jesus, come on, Jesus has already done it on our behalf. Hmm. His power over the devil. And that said, I believe it's the synthesis between the instructions or the how-tos, our part, and his completed work, the already done. It's like every benefit that we find in Christ. Number one, it's a process of revelation. It always begins there. Whether it's revelation coming out of this word, whether it's revelation that God is revealing in your spirit, whether it's revelation that someone speaks over your life, It begins there, but then that revelation has to somehow outwork, and there's the application of that revelation. I mean, let me just tell you, God has to reveal himself to you. You don't show up and and just say, oh, okay, God, I'm ready. No, it happens by a process of revelation. The blinders are taken off. But then there's an application, there's execution where you and I have to step in and respond to now that which we have has been made known to us. It's just like when we see something in Scripture, your children, you don't hold them accountable to something until they are old enough and you've revealed to them this is a requirement. There is no requirement. There's there's no expectation on your part as a parent until you bring revelation to their little persons, this is now the requirement upon you. Then it's their responsibility to do what? Apply your instructions. To execute that which you have made known to them is your will. And yet what we find in this passage in Matthew is Jesus suppressing his divinity in order to reveal for us his identity with our humanity. Don't you love that? Forty days, forty nights, Jesus was what? He was hungry. How many of you know God doesn't have any needs? Please? Oh, God was so lonely, he had to create man. God was never lonely. That was never God's motivation for doing anything. Because God doesn't have any inherent needs. It's part of what makes God, God. And so in this particular moment, when it says Jesus was hungry, what we're seeing is we're seeing the human part of this God-man, this man-God expressed for you and I. So there's an identity with humanity. Hebrews, the second chapter, verses 17 through 18. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of his people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. There we go. And Jesus had nothing to prove. He had no sin to crucify nor sin nature to overcome. Yet you and I have both. 
And while Satan might be the temporary ruler of this world, it's paramount we always remember that God is still sovereign over the whole thing. You know, there's this dangerous dualism that Christians have is either overestimating or underestimating the authority the devil has. And I think because we come out of a particular part of the, of the body of Christ, the charismatic Pentecostal tongue-talking side of it, part of it, hallelujah, proud of it, shandai. By the way, some of you say, what does he mean by that, okay? Talking in tongues many times, it sounds a little, in, in, never mind. I think many times we tend to make everything, it's a demon this, it's that, you know, it's the devil. You know, I got to tell you, I see, I, I, I do less warfare with the devil as I get closer to God and I do a whole lot more warfare with me. I got to tell you. Now, I mean, I, 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 listen, I love spiritual warfare as good as the next guy. I say that in fear and trembling of God. I mean, I first got saved, I had a book on angels and a six cassette tape series on demons by Derek Prince. I was ready. (laughs) Couldn't find the book of Romans. Nobody taught me how to read my Bible, but I had, I was armed in demonology and I knew about angels. I was a theological mess. Let me just tell you. There was no sin. It was great. Everything was, I was binding and rebuking and smacking and carrying on. But the longer I walk with God, the less I find the bind and rebuke and cast down and cast out. And the more I just have to look in the mirror and just say, it's you. Why are you clapping? <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's you. You're pretty much the source of all of that angst and unhappiness right there. You are the common denominator to this mess. But God's over it all. Now, he's not capable of evil. We've already read that in James. And yet, let me just tell you, God will take, well, he'll step back for a moment and he will allow the devil certain access. Are you with me? In order to do what? Teach us a little something. Said, I don't believe that. Then read the book of Job then. Have you considered? Please don't. I mean, here's, and here's the whole time, the devil just waiting to have at him to prove that there's no way this man could possibly be that righteous and this blessed. And God is dictating the entire time exactly what Satan can and can't do to him. Hmm. Got to move on. So sanctification by temptation. What does it do? Number one, identity. What is common to man? 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12 through 13. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what, except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted, what? Beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. What is common to man? We all struggle. We all struggle. 
whether it's anger or donuts or pornography, whatever it is, there are no new sins and no new temptations. Just contemporary and personalized applications of sin. Well, they didn't have pornography in 1450. They had lust. We're not inventing new sins. He's the same old devil, same old tricks. Oh, yeah, maybe he's got an internet connection attached now, but beyond that, nothing new. And temptation, even strong temptation, listen, saints, it's not sin. I'm amazed that the devil tries to bring condemnation to us just because we're being tempted. Have you ever felt yourself under condemnation just because you wanted to say something nasty in traffic to someone that just cut you off? And all of a sudden now, this thing that you're battling, just because the temptation comes, it doesn't make you guilty. You know what it does? It makes you human. It is in that place that our identity with our humanity, when we are tempted, the promise is it's common to man. And what does the enemy want to tell you and me? Oh, it's just you. Oh, you're the only pervert in this church. You're the only person. Don't you dare tell anybody that. You'll get a visit from a pastor. Come on. You know what I'm talking about. I mean, we're not getting a lot of, we're like, woo, and amens right now. But you know it to be true. And yet the devil, many times before we've ever taken that temptation and yielded to it, the devil comes in with his condemnation and says, you know what? You may as well go ahead because you're already guilty. Temptation doesn't make you guilty. It just makes you human. Hmm. The second is humility. Let me tell you what temptation will do. It'll bring humility to you. You think you're all that. James chapter 1 again says, but each one, when tempted, no one should say God is tempting me. We read that. 14, but each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. See, the victim says, wasn't my fault. Wasn't Wasn't my fault. It was there. The hot and now sign was on. They were giving away free Big Macs. I mean, it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't my fault. How many, we hear this all the time. It's called what? A victim. Now, I don't want to be light of legit, I don't want to make light of legitimate victims because there's pain, things get foisted upon us in this lifetime. You don't choose to become one, but you do choose to remain one. There's no such thing as a Christian victim. You may, you may have a process where it starts out, but Jesus doesn't intend to leave you there. I did it because. It's not my fault. Let me just tell you. There's always a double automatic door, four lane, no traffic, HOV, wide open door to sin. The devil's not going to make it hard for you to sin. The world system is not going to make it difficult for you to sin. 
there's always going to be a wide open door. Say, well, I just, the door was open and everybody else was walking through it. And I just thought, yeah, that's the problem. You were thinking. You are being led by the spirit that was saying, no. You were just following everybody else. I'm just a victim. First John 5, verses 18 through 20. We know that anyone born of God doesn't continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. We know we are children of God, and that in that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. But we know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, his Son, Jesus Christ, the true God and eternal life. Humility. One of the keys to sanctification is humility. I'm not. I can't by myself. Because if I could, I would have already done it. Humility. And that leads us to number three, and I won't finish this tonight, which is accountability. Oh, we don't don't like this either. Back to the book of James, chapter 5, verse 16. Confess your sins to each other. You've got to be kidding. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. Prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And it begs a pretty uncomfortable question as we close tonight. With whom are you in significant enough relationship to do this? I mean, we, we come stumbling in here on Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights. Great. Good. It's a good starting point. But if we develop any intimate enough relationships where we can go to somebody that, and, and we, we've, we've built time after time. We have built bridges of trust where we can say to somebody, I need help. I am struggling. As a matter of fact, I'm going under for the third time. Now, let me just tell you, when this is working, you won't have to go under for the third time. When you feel yourself begin to sink, you're going to grab somebody and say, pray for me. Help me. And I'm not talking about trying to put another appointment on Pastor Donnell's calendar or Pastor Sean's calendar. I'm talking about how the body is intended to be interwoven and work together. Dependent on God and interdependent on one another. That we don't wait for somebody. We don't wait for your life to blow up. So many Christian magazines and news outlets It becomes like some kind of people magazine for failed ministries. Somebody else that blew up with a a woman or ran off and left their spouse or it's got problems with alcohol or what I mean. It's just, and every time the common denominator was isolation, no accountability. Every one of those, somebody, they just thought, you know what? I got the man of God syndrome. I got 10,000 people in my church. God's cut me a special deal. I don't need all these fools as long as they continue to show up and tithe. 
And then, guess what? Then you get to be on the cover of Christianity Today. And saints, I'm not saying this to sound harsh. I'm not pronouncing a word curse. I'm just saying this, when you do an autopsy of these men and women that blow up, right here, right here, this is where, as, as they're performing that autopsy, ah, see, right here, this was missing. This is what was missing. This didn't have to happen like this. Accountability. Are we willing to tell one another? Are we willing to humble ourselves? And again, that's number two in this process is humility. I'm saying, I need, I need some help. Ask another way, who's discipling you? Not who's teaching at you, but who's discipling you? Who is in your life in a significant enough way to bring correction? So that we can be biblical, not just read these passages in in, in some kind of detached, isolated way, but in a way that they become endemic in how we do life with one another. Because if you can't answer the question, who is discipling you, then you can't answer the next question is who you're discipling. And I hope that that's a word you've heard once or twice in this church. Because we believe in this deeply. I mean, the mandate was don't go out. It wasn't just go get a bunch of folks saved and, and, and get them to the connection table so that they can become, quote, members of the church. It says make disciples. There's a fundamental difference in that. It's one of the reasons, one of the things that sets us apart, I hope, at Grace Covenant Church and in our every nation family of ministries and churches is that we're just not just looking to pad the, pad the roles of churches as somebody that shows up twice a year, they're members. No. Are you part of what we, of the discipleship process? But it begins by being connected with someone else so that we can We can do life successfully. Confess your sins one to the next. And let me just say, oh, I'm married. I do that with my spouse. And if I don't do it, she tells me. I know what I'm talking about. Hmm. And I believe, and I'll have to close here, as much as there are weapons of our warfare in Ephesians 6, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, I believe God has given a similar, similar weaponry for sanctification. And I'll break this out next week. And those three things are real simple. The power of word, power of the word, the power of prayer, and the power of the Holy Ghost. Let's pray.